Hi, this is Steve Poor, and you're listening to Pioneers and Pathfinders. With all the conversations on recent advancements in technology, generative AI and whatnot, we thought we'd revisit our interview with David Wang, Chief Innovation Officer at Wilson Sonsini. His career exemplifies the importance of tech innovation and change management in the legal profession. We hope you enjoy, and thanks for listening. The past few years has seen a rise in heads of innovation at big law firms. One of the leading voices in the space is David Wang, Wilson Sonsini's Chief Innovation Officer. David is responsible for overseeing the firm's innovation strategy, the development and implementation of legal technology programs, and supporting and advising both internal and client teams on the legal and operational implications of emerging technologies and business models. David previously practiced corporate and securities law for more than 10 years, working with private and public companies on general corporate and transactional matters. Prior to becoming a lawyer, David was an entrepreneur himself. Under David's leadership, Wilson has received multiple accolades for their innovative use of technology. In today's conversation, we discuss how David transitioned from the practice of law to leading a cutting-edge innovation and technology team at a big law firm, how he manages his portfolio of responsibilities, his decision-making process for taking on new projects, and what excites him most in the legal tech market. Thank you very much for listening. David, thank you for joining the podcast. Thank you for having me. So Wilson has built a fabulous reputation on a number of areas over the years, but one of them is their role in innovation and driving solutions, particularly through the use of technology. So let's talk first about your role as chief innovation officer for a firm that thinks that far ahead. You're the first chief innovation officer we've had on the show. So talk a little bit about what that role is, how it came to be, and what your responsibilities are as the CIO. Yeah, happy to do that. I think it's kind of a unique time for law firms right now in the course of our history. I think when I first started becoming interested in legal technology and innovation, it was like 2014, 15, and I was an associate at the firm at the time in the corporate practice. So prior to becoming chief innovation officer, I was a corporate attorney for you know more than 10 years practicing at Wilson and kind of the startup venture practice. And then before that at Davis Polk in capital markets. And my interest actually coincided with, I think, basically the Cambrian explosion of legal tech. And I think the stat is something like, and don't quote me, but you know, I think 2015 or 2016, it was something like $85 million of investment into legal tech. And I think last year, if you counted investment and exit, it was something like 9.1 billion, right? And so there's been kind of the sea change in the industry and this nascent thing called legal technology, legal operations, and kind of these related areas, you know, or quote, like new law. So along with that, I've kind of evolved from being first an associate that's just particularly interested and spent a good amount of time learning about this and talking to people about it to being known as the person that was the most expert at this in the firm, kind of like almost like a practice specialty, spending a lot of my time on it and then eventually running some projects as an associate and then kind of got management's attention. And we had a particular need at that time. So that's when I created our first innovation titled job for myself. I think it was like Corporate Strategic Innovation Council or something like that. 
Great title. Yeah, very long. <laughs> like, <laughs> had to have all the words in there, and and then, but that didn't last very long because it turned out that it was very hard to manage the hybrid responsibilities of practice as well as leading a technology effort. And then so pretty quickly evolved into becoming chief innovation officer and then building my own team. And then fast forward to 2022, we've kind of, I think, done a number of projects that's gotten a significant amount of industry attention and also changes and kind of efficiency improvements as well as kind of client betterment for our firm. And now, you know, I report to our managing partner and we're a full department in the firm with a kind of a sizable team and a, kind of a portfolio of projects really encompassing three overarching areas as far as my responsibility. So first is strategy with respect to technology. So I kind of advise our managing partner and our board on technology strategy with respect to the front end of the house, so to speak, like the top line, bottom line impacting technologies, if you will. You know, working closely with my counterpart, our chief information officer, Mike Lucas, who's kind of a wonderful forward-thinking leader in his own field, who's in charge of kind of the back of the house, sort of, you know, your traditional IT, computers, network, security, that kind of thing. And then the second part is our product roadmap. So almost acting as a VP product, if you will, for the firm in terms of not only technologies we adopt and what the out like product outcome should be for that as far as experiences for attorneys and clients, but also things that we indigenously develop. And so I kind of run any of those programs, probably the most well-known one being New Orleans, for which we won fast companies, the most innovative companies last year. And then finally, there's kind of this strategic partnership aspect of things. So strategic partnerships with respect to technology companies in the ecosystem in spaces that are adjacent to ours. So I, again, using tech company analogies, because that's the world where I come from, kind of like a head of biz dev, if you will, for technology, right? To kind of develop those relationships, maintain them, negotiate partnership agreements and those kind of things. That sounds like a fabulous portfolio. So let, let's sort of talk a little bit about each one. So your product roadmaps, what are the variables you consider? Because there's a world of opportunity out there. And no matter the size of this financial support you get from the firm, it's not unlimited, I presume. So you're constantly, I presume, making choices as to what products you're going to support full-throated and which ones are going to go into a second tier and which ones you're not going to support. How do you balance those variables? Yeah, I think I start with kind of an execution-oriented perspective, kind of a different horse in that, like, you know, before becoming a lawyer, I was an entrepreneur, you know, started my own company. And, you know, my philosophy is always that if, if it doesn't get done, then it's just all talk, right? And so there's a lot of opportunities and, you know, a lot of people that are very interested in kind of generally within the firm, like we have tons of very enthusiastic associates and partners who wanted to see things happen in the practice. But, you know, it's that, I don't know if you've seen that cartoon, right? And it's like, okay, who wants to see change? Everybody raise their hand. And it's like, who wants to actually change the way that they do things? Nobody raises their hand. Right. I see. I've used that cartoon. Yeah. <laughs> yeah. Right. And so like, you know, I'm kind of looking for uh, kind of that Venn diagram of, okay, is this a thing that makes sense? which is very large. There's a lot of things that you can do that make sense, right? It's like, okay, theoretically, this is improving efficiency or potentially going to gain us more clients or increase stickiness with a client, you know, all, all this good stuff. That's one area of it. And then the second thing I look at is, is this strategic or scalable, right? Like kind of like a longer, like if we were to be successful in this thing, 
will it actually move the needle? Because, you know, as you know, and I think most of your listeners, um, I expect to know, getting lawyers to change is hard. Changing law firm behavior is hard. It's a lot of lift and a lot of investment, not necessarily just in terms of the dollar amount, but, you know, in terms of institutional capital, change management, hand-to-hand combat, cat herding, whatever analogy you want to use, right? And so, like, I think the, the risk is pursuing too many things you're going to kind of wear yourself out because if you're doing 10 things and nine of them is they make sense, but they're not going to move the needle. Even if you succeed, then maybe that's not the best choice. I would prefer to concentrate all my energy on the one thing in that 10 that actually moves the needle and try to drive that through as much as possible. So that's kind of the second part of that Venn diagram. And then the third part is what I started the conversation with in terms of execution. It's it's never going to happen if the practice and the lawyers within that practice. And to, honestly, a lot of times it comes down to specific people are not passionate and willing and you know believe in the vision and want to drive it through in their own practice. So I'm very, very lucky to be at a firm where I have a lot of people like that and senior practitioners like that and practice group leaders that think in that way because they are every day steeped in you know, technology companies. I always joke, it's like, you know, if you don't believe in the stuff that we're doing, like, where do you think our revenue comes from? Because literally every single one of our clients make money themselves by using technology to disrupt old ways of doing things in other industries. And so, you know, I'm lucky to have a lot of people like that in the firm. So I'm kind of looking for that overlap between these three things. Is it actually a good idea? Will it actually move the needle? And then do I actually have people that are willing to do it? You know, now just talk about it. I assume you've built support for this function over time as as you've grown. The CIO position didn't just materialize out of thin air and all of a sudden everybody's looking around and going, what the heck is going on here? Talk a little bit more about that role you mentioned about how the client representations of Wilson impacted the adoption of this philosophy and this approach and is helping you succeed in your role. Yeah. I think people, you know, like with all things, right? Like they see the outcome, right? And they're like, oh, David's doing this thing and Wilson sure seems to be doing a lot of stuff, right? And you look at all our awards and press releases, but like behind all of that is years of grinding and the one, literally one single door at a time kind of convincing. And I think I had the benefit of this is, and I, I do see a pattern in that most successful innovation efforts in law firms that I've seen have had a very strong indigenous homegrown component to it. And, you know, I benefited from having the credibility as a practitioner that people knew, like independent of the tech stuff that I was doing in my firm. So that when I walked into a partner's office, they're like, oh, you know, I worked with David before. He's a smart guy. He knows what he's talking about. It's not just kind of like somebody, a consultant coming in and showing them some slides. And that, I think that was important. I think we started very small. And I know there's a lot of people out there that hate this, including myself, you know, like low hanging fruit. Right. <laughs> Let's go get some low hanging fruit. I'm like, man, <laughs> <laughs> I'm done with this low hanging fruit. But like, just like everybody else, we had to start with low hanging fruit because it was unproven and people were very skeptical. But I think the important thing is that um, we did have ambition and vision to kind of build a, from that up. And I think that one of the things that I think that we did very successfully in my journey through at Wilson that I think some other folks have not been able to do is that they've just been doing like 10 low-hanging fruits in a row rather than going like low-hanging fruit, low-hanging fruit, a little bit higher, a little bit higher, and just kind of like increasing the scale rapidly of the things that you're doing. And again, they're not 
a little luck involved in that we've been able to essentially just move from singles to doubles and then to like home runs very quickly. And that's why we've been able to scale this function up in the firm, I think, in a very rapid kind of time frame, even for a law firm. A number of the projects for which you've gotten recognized, and you're right, the Wilson's gotten recognized all over the place for the innovative work you're doing, have been uh, work you've done with clients, whether it's the work with Morgan Stanley or whatever. How does it differ working with clients? Same analysis you go through, or is it you go through a different analysis for building a joint project with a client? Yeah, I think the most important thing there for me is that the actually, you know, and this is is maybe a little contrarian, but, you know, I'm also known to be a little contrarian. (laughs) (laughs) I think what the clients want are actually very clear. You know, the way that I think about a lot of this stuff is that, like, I think there's a tendency to go one or the other in terms of like how you think about product, right? And so, you know, for the folks that are listening that kind of work in product or understand product, right? Like if you're looking at like the product market fit or, you know, whatever rubric you want to think about that in terms of like your users and the product that they want, I think people usually only look at the client or they look at the attorney. Like, you know, I'm building a CLM solution. I'm like looking at the in-house lawyer, right? And like, that's my kind of like target user, right? And I'm building the product for that person. Or like, you know, I'm building a product. I'm trying to sell law firms. I'm looking at the law firm, you know, lawyer or paralegal user. And that's kind of the product. And, you know, when law firms look at their clients, they tend to do the same thing to the extent that they're even doing that, right? Some, some law firms just like... We have clients, you know, is that a thing, right? Right. right. Do we care what they think? I think we just do things this way, right? Actually, that is probably the majority behavior within law practice generally, which is incredibly strange when you think about it as kind of a service industry, right? But like, it is bizarre. Yeah, right. But the insight, I think, for me is that oftentimes there is this tension between client and attorney. And this tension isn't intentional. It's kind of inherent to the way that our industry has developed and like historic norms and practices in like precedent setting, like 500 year old type, like, you know, unchanged thing, right? Like, and these behaviors that are just normal in legal practice and industry that, you know, every single law firm essentially interacts with their clients in the same way. And the actual needs and demands of the client in terms of how they want to experience that service and what they want and how they want to get value out of it lives in tension along a number of different axes. And so like, I think the most successful solutions are the ones, or at least in the kind of vector I'm working in where there is a law firm involved, are the ones that successfully address that tension. It's not necessarily focused on the client or the attorney exclusively, but rather the when they come into what is that tension and resolving that tension. This is, a, I think, a little bit different than how you would look at it if you were building a pure product just like for the client. Like if it was a CEO of a SaaS company, I probably would think very differently about the solution. But kind of sitting where I am, you know, I'm also not the CEO of a SaaS company that's like Latera or, you know, Thompson Riders or, you know, Lexus that's really selling to law firms. So I'm also thinking, so there's this third way of thinking. I'm just like, okay, it's really our interaction with our clients and how do we make that interaction better, more successful, a better user experience for the client so that the client loves us even more. Yeah, no, absolutely. You've been incredibly successful doing that. What's the role of data analytics in your function? Does that function report to you? I've heard you talk at conferences about the efforts to extract data from time cards, for example. Yeah, so we have 
kind of if you think about the functionally like a number of functional areas that we're trying to tackle right so there's kind of like digitization there's automation right and then there's kind of like data and uh, machine learning the stuff that's client applicable the aspects of that like in terms of like for example nlp extractions of client documentation like that stuff sits under me in terms of the internal data analytics of our own information that sits under our uh, it department with mike but we work closely together because basically i'm the one out there bringing in the technology and then but the data science team is like then using that technology to build models and develop kind of what the solution is so it's a collaborative effort for us I think that that is something that we're only beginning to crack. I talked about this, and I think the last time we saw each other in a conference, it's the I very much believe in the notion that law firms are fundamentally misunderstanding their operations in effect, because the way that like if you think about it from first principles, which is something that I really kind of like, and again, this is Silicon Valley type, you know, like I think a lot of people advocate for thinking about it. And so, you know, instead of thinking about things from the way that they are existing kind of incrementally now, if you really go back to first principles and think about how it works, if you are billing your clients and every single person in your firm, you know, partner down to paralegal is recording in great volume exactly what they're doing. Every single minute, essentially every day, which together constitute your entire revenue. How is that not the starting point for literally every decision you make about your business of like, what am I doing? Who am I doing for? What type of things am I doing? What's the volume like? And it's really only the operational inability for folks to tag that information effectively with structured data at the point of origin, right? I.e. forcing people to put in detail timesheet, you know, like metrics and, you know, like um, phases, right? And like, you know, ABA code and all of those things that are the bane of my, like I was one of those people that was never very good at getting that right on my timesheet. That's <laughs> the thing that's preventing it. And the, the, the inherent limitation of that approach is that you have to conceive of the question that you want to ask in advance, like a priori, before that entire process is implemented. So in a giant law firm of thousands of people, even if you had a good system, it's not a system that you can change easily. Like it would be like a huge exercise in retraining everybody to do like, oh, okay, now we want you to tag them this way, right? Like instead of, and so that problem makes the thing that you should be doing from a first principle impossible. And so the industry's response to this has just been like, Yes, this is impossible, but, you know, like, I think the response should really be like, oh, we should figure out how to do this because it would be so valuable and kind of a game changer in terms of how we understand our business and how we can kind of communicate with clients and potentially drive economic and other outcomes using understanding of data and I believe it, but it's it's very hard premise to prove, right? Even though the concepts all seem to make sense when you talk about it. Yeah, it's a fascinating challenge, isn't it? Because you can see the opportunity sitting out there in terms of this basis of knowledge and the ability to, if you had the ability to extract it and analyze it, how much guidance you'd get in terms of making decisions for the organization and for your clients. It's a fascinating challenge. You talked a little bit about your path leading up to this. You uh, talked about starting off as an entrepreneur. I think you you started your own consulting company back when you were in college. If Do I have that right? Yeah. What led you to the world of entrepreneurship and to change from that into law school? 
it's kind of an embarrassing story, but like it, you know, really was not very well directed. I was always just one of those people that like wanted to tinker, so to speak, right? And uh, was never shy about trying to do things myself. And so, you know, it was just one of those things that like there was an opportunity that I saw. And, you know, because I came from an oil town and there was just a lot of demand that I saw in for a particular type of training. And then, you know, one thing led to another. But really, like <laughs> my parents really thought that being a business person wasn't like a legitimate career choice. And so they're like, okay, you need to go to professional school. Oh, your math is terrible. So being a doctor is out. So I think, I guess you'd be a lawyer. Everybody thinks that you like to argue. And so, you know, I was a debater in high school. I was like, you know, that's quite like the, the you, know, you know, I came from a relatively poor background, you know, like I didn't know any lawyers. My understanding of the profession at the time that I was thinking about going to law school really like was informed by like Ali McBeal, right? <laughs> I, I, I went to law school thinking that I would be like standing around yelling objection at people a lot. And only after I would say like second year that I really uh, like two out was that I really kind of had a baseline understanding of like how the profession worked or at least the kind of understanding of the profession that, you know, a two out would have. Right, and then right. I came into practice that I, I remember, I think like it was like one of my first assignments ever was it was a diligence project and I had 200 NDAs that the partner gave me. And what he told me was, hey, make sure all of these NDAs are exactly the same and tell me which ones are not the same. Oh my. Yeah. And that was, <laughs> that was the exercise. And so I had to go through it, basically compare them all with each other manually. And that took me like a whole day. You know, after that, I was just like, man, this job is terrible. <laughs> <laughs> that, that's probably like the, the seed of some of the stuff that we're, you know, now that we have like AI capabilities, like luckily people don't really have to do that anymore. But like that was a thing and it's still a thing in many parts of our industry. So yeah, it is. It's interesting. And people view that as part of their revenue model, which makes no sense. So what led you to become a corporate lawyer? Uh, again, it, it was very mercenary. I didn't even know Silicon Valley was kind of a thing like when I was in law school. Like, and that was like the state of the lack of my sophistication. I think it, it was like um, a 2L that was one of like my resident fellows, I think it was telling me, like, because I was describing to him like what I wanted to do it was like, oh, I'm really interested in technology. Right. I kind of like, I want to have a business land. Right. And then like, yada, yada, yada. And then he's like, why aren't you going to go interview with the Silicon Valley firms? And I'm just like, oh, what's Silicon Valley? You know? Like, <laughs> <laughs> um, now let me, let me go Google that and figure that out. And then I figured out, okay, like corporate law was kind of the thing that was the closest to business. And, you know, kind of off I went, even though, you know, I had harbored hopes of, you know, being a trial lawyer, but from what I understood, which I think turns out to be right, is that if you really wanted to go to trial as a young lawyer, there was probably going to be some economic hardship, right? Because, you know, you're either a public defender or you're a prosecutor, or you don't really get to do that when you go into big law as a litigator when you're kind of a young attorney. Not really anymore, do you? So if you, as you look back on your, uh, your journey up to date, for those people listening that are trying to have the same path, what advice do you give people who, who want to try to drive a different way of thinking within their law firms or trying to have success in this legal tech space? What, what advice do you give them? That's, um, that's a good question. First of all, like, I think luck is a huge component. I think people underestimate that. And, you know, once they get across the river or, you know, like even when they're fording the river well, I think people tend to go like, oh, yeah, you know, like I could tell you that it's because of my personal brilliance and genius that, 
you know, we got this far. But honestly, like timing was super important. You know, definitely there, because there was that shift in the industry that was widely perceived within you know, there was the need. And, and the good news for the people that are trying to do that still is that I think that's very much still the case. I think for the attorneys that are actively thinking about this space, because I get this question a lot from young lawyers and law students too. They're like, oh, can I learn how to code? Right. And then I'm just like, I mean, you could, I mean, it doesn't hurt, but like, are you really going to learn or do you know how to code well enough to actually like build your own thing, like to be the actual technical founder of a company or like to do the building yourself? Because if the answer is no, which is like 90% of that, I do, by the way, I do know unicorn people like this. Uh, there's a friend of mine who, you know, who's like a, you know, comp sci major, right? Like a coder and then went to law school, right? And I'm just, and you can like do, and I'm just, okay, fine, you're a unicorn. Good for you, right? But like, right. you know, if you're not one of those people, then it's like, is that the best use of your time? Or is it the case that like you need to develop the side of your thing that is really going to be your competitive advantage to enable you to kind of participate in one of these conversations or dialogues or, generate a thing in which you're bringing kind of a sufficient amount of value to the table where people go, oh, yeah, this person's going to, you know, like we should give this person a shot either as internal or, you know, you want to go interview at a company that's doing legal tech. What's your value that you're bringing to the table? It's like anything else. How do you bring value? And if you are not differentiated in terms of the value that you can bring, then I think it's going to be very hard. You know, I had the good fortune of being I think one of the people that were really well informed and knew a lot of the people in the space at a time when the space was still very nascent and like not a lot of people knew very much about it or understood what it was or like how it worked. I think that is probably not as good of a competitive advantage anymore, you know, now in 2022, right, where, you know, you have a lot of people out there that are like professionals you know, in legal operations and legal technology that like, you know, have experience and then they kind of understand and know the thing. So I think then it's like, okay, what's your value that you're bringing to the table? Are you a M&A partner, for example, that you're like, I'm willing to bet my practice and my clients on this new way of doing things and like actually make it work to see it through from an economic perspective, right? Like change the whole model using these technologies or like using this and I'm going to find a developer. Like that brings value. But if you're kind of like a first year associate and you're like, okay, what can I do to jump in here? Like, are you going to like do the heavy lifting and work harder than anybody else? And like essentially make the operations of whatever it is that you want to contribute to the most seamless possible. That's also value that you can bring to the table. But don't think about it in terms of what you want, I guess is what I'm saying is like, think about it as like, okay, what is the differentiated thing that you're going to bring to the table? Just like if you were starting a business, like what is the differentiated offering that you're going to provide to the market that people will pay you for it? Right. It's the same thing if you're a person. No, that's great advice. Last question. And because I know we've, we, we've hit our time limit. As you've seen the explosion of legal tech, David, what is it that's coming on the market that's got you most interested or most excited about the potential impact on the profession? Is there anything that stands out to you? I think the most interesting thing that I see in the market right now is this movement towards standardization that is really starting to pick up steam and is being driven and supported increasingly by clients. That is going to really force the hand, if you will, of the I would say kind of like intransient, but really that's inappropriate. It's the people that are still set in the way that they want to do things and the kind of the bespoke way that is, in my opinion, 
mostly arbitrary in terms of the way that they're different from other things, right? And so people, you got the, you know, one the NDA, bond terms, like folks like that, that's trying to standardize SaaS agreements. You know, I'm kind of part of and driving the open cap table initiative, right? Where we're bringing essentially every single tech law firm that you out there, us, Gunderson, Cooley, Fenwick, Goodwin, Perkins Gooey, MoFo, DLA, Latham, like we're all there and we're trying to standardize the way that like cap to table data is going to work, you know, with Morgan Stanley, with Carta, with LTSE, right? Like all NASDAQ, all of the major players, like because the standardization is required to take that automation and process digitization to the next level. Right. And everybody sees that. And I think, you know, NVCA, right, that's been around forever. Right. And, you know, standardizing the DNO questionnaires, like you just, it goes on and on and on. And so I think this wave of standardization is going to drive another kind of like move in forward in terms of further digitization of our industry. So I think that's probably the most interesting trend that I'm seeing and kind of starting to develop right now. Fabulous. David, I can't tell you how much I appreciate the time you spent with us this morning. Congratulations on all the great work and the recognition you and Wilson have gotten. And it's it's great to see you guys being leaders in the profession in this respect. Thank you so much for having me. Thanks for listening to Pioneers and Pathfinders. Be sure to visit thepioneerpodcast.com for show notes and more episodes. And don't forget to subscribe to our podcast on your favorite platform.